anybody does, the government does is wrong. You know, it's yeah. it's always there's no balance or no leeway. I think yeah. sometimes. <laughs> oh me. Thank you so much uh, for coming and tuning in tonight. And we are at week 12 of the Gospel of John. This is our next to last week, Lord willing. And uh, hopefully we'll finish at the right particular place and so forth. So let's have a word of prayer, then we'll begin. Father, thank you for this day that you've given us, uh, this day that you've made and that we know that you're directing our lives in the way that you would have us to follow you and we pray that we'll be open and obedient to your providential direction and grace and that we'll be open to more importantly to watching and observing and reading and understanding the word of God and that we might uh, submit ourselves and uh, conform ourselves to the word and we pray that this class will be of benefit and that help as that, that pursuit as we look at these final chapters in the gospel of John and read about the final days of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I repeated some notes here <clears throat> from last time just to give us the context because we covered some of this. Uh, but I, uh, I have this map of Jerusalem here. Uh, it's a different, little different map, or maybe the same one of the similar map. But uh, this uh, shows, of course, um, up in the up here, Golgotha, or Calvary. Calvary is the Latin form, and then Gordon's Calvary. So I'm going to be coming back to these two Calvaries here. Remember, Christ has been at the palace of Herod the Great, or where Pilate's residence was. That's where he's been sentenced now to, uh, to be crucified. And uh, so he has, uh, we've seen in chapter 19, he has been, the, the issue to crucify has been given and he's been brought uh, to the place of crucifixion. And I'm pointing those two out, two, two things out because there is, uh, among evangelical Christians, there has been some debate uh, about exactly where the place of crucifixion is. And I'll talk about that Gordon's Calvary in a moment here versus Golgotha, the traditional location there. So uh, we noticed in verse 31 that it's uh, Friday, of course, at this time, the day of preparation and so forth. And Jesus has been crucified, but the next uh, day is a Sabbath, uh, Saturday the Sabbath, and it's, all, it's really a special kind of Sabbath because it's during the uh, unleavened Passover feast or unleavened bread. And so Jewish, we read that verse in the Old Testament that said you don't leave a body on a pole or you don't leave somebody up there, you bury the body. Jewish tradition was to bury the body pretty much immediately, uh, and still is, for Orthodox Jews and so forth. You don't, you don't, uh, you don't have a wake <laughs> or anything like that. You bury the body pretty quickly. And so we see here in these verses that, uh, therefore, the Jew, even though Jesus is, they want him crucified, they see him as a, as a criminal, uh, they still don't want to leave his body up on the cross, uh, for the Sabbath. So they go to Pilate and uh, they say, you know, uh, uh, let's break his legs. Break his legs, break Jesus' legs, and that way he'll die more quickly. We talked about, remember, the suffocation probably that comes in because you can't push yourself up, you can't breathe, apparently. And so, because uh, normally the Romans just left you on the cross for days and days. But the Jews, that would be breaking Jewish law to leave a body like that and not bury it. So we noticed in verse 32, the soldiers came to break the legs of the other two and they noticed that Jesus had already given up the goat. He was already, he's already dead. He had died. And uh, 
the uh, soldiers, in order to check out and see if that was true, they put a spear into the side of Jesus. And, uh, and, and, and they no, it showed, proved to themselves that he was, in fact, uh, already dead. Um, so then we see uh, verse 35 it talks about how this is really a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in verse 35, 36. This happened so the scripture would be filled, none of his bones would be broken. And so the scripture predicted that none of his bones would be broken, at least it predicted of, of the Messiah and so forth, uh, prophecies about the Messiah. And of course, the Passover lamb, we notice, was uh, the legs could not be broken of the Passover lamb. Uh, that was forbidden. And Jesus' legs were not, Psalm 34, 20, so forth. So uh, his death, in many ways, we know, was a fulfillment of prophecies. And uh, another scripture, Zechariah twelve ten, they will look on the one they have pierced. Uh, so this is going to be fulfilled at the second coming. When Jesus comes, he sets foot on the on Mount of Olives, there, according to Zechariah, and, and the mountain splits, he walks through the gate into Jerusalem. They're going to mourn because they'll realize this: they have crucified this man, this the, the Messiah, who was the Messiah. Then, in verse thirty-eight, we see Joseph uh, of Arimathea uh, and Nicodemus. They uh, they go and ask for the body of Jesus. Again, they want to bury him uh, uh, before the Sabbath comes and so forth. They don't have a lot of time here. Uh, and so it says, uh, Later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came, took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier who earlier had visited Jesus at night? Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and seven, about seventy-five pounds. Taking the body, the two of them wrapped it in spices and strips of linen, in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So it was a tomb of Joseph but it had never been used. Um, so um, they had to hurry because we're getting you know, towards sundown on a Friday evening. The Sabbath is coming. So they kind of, as I say, hurriedly wrapped his body and, and so forth and placed him in this tomb. Now, um, normally, people who were poor, like Jesus, most Jews, most people, not just Jews, but Jews, were just placed in a dirt grave like we do today. You know, I mean, like people are buried. And usually this was just a trench grave, maybe six foot deep, and they would put you in there, maybe in a coffin, maybe in a wooden box, and put you in there and bury you. And that's, that's, that's the way that uh, you would be disposed of. But uh, the wealthy, uh, very wealthy people, uh, had tombs um, that they used. Um, and so if you look around Jerusalem, even today, you'll find hundreds of tombs. Now this is, you see these, you see these, uh, these openings here. Uh, these are actually tombs dug into the uh, limestone all around. So Jerusalem is on a hill and it's just rocky, it's limestone and you can just carve it out and so forth. So there's tombs there of kings, of all kinds of people. We, you know, we think, uh, they think they found the king of, you know, Herod, you know, possibly, uh, of, of Herod's family or the Caiaphas family, maybe some of Herod's family. A lot of, a lot of dispute, about, dispute about that. This is, uh, I just, these are pictures. This is south of Jerusalem of Mount Zion. There's a Arab village now called Silwan there. And, and people have used those tombs. They live in them. They actually made houses out of them today. But they were actually tombs of very wealthy people. 
Um, here's one, uh, a place called the Hill of Offense south of Jerusalem. Here's another tomb of, a, of another guy, B'nai Hazir. Now, um, some of these things became very elaborate. So people in the ancient world who were very rich built these elaborate tombs. Uh, there was a king, Mausolus, uh, 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 who lived uh, in the Persian period. This is around 350 B.C. when the Persians had conquered the known world. And he lived in a city in what we would think of as Turkey today, just uh, southeast Turkey. And his name was Mausolus, and he built this elaborate tomb, huge thing. It's been destroyed now, but we have all kinds of description of it. But it had columns like this, another thing. And it, that's where we get the name Mausoleum. It's taken from his name, Mausolus, King Mausolus, because he started this thing of, we're going to have these elaborate tombs, we're going to have columns. It's just, you know, just amazing kind of stuff. And so the rich people did that. And so in Jerusalem, you can find old ones like that when, when, when the kings rule, when you know, there was Judea and so forth. And then when, uh, when uh, the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, everything, everybody's poor. They're taken into captivity. No, there's nobody, you know. And then you start finding tombs again like this in the Maccabean period. Uh, the Jews revolted against the Syrians or the Seleucids in the second century B.C., 167 B.C. They started what's called the Maccabean Revolt. They revolted, and eventually they built a kingdom. They built a Jewish kingdom. They conquered all the territory of Solomon, and all, all they had, they, it was quite expansive. Eventually, they were defeated by the Romans in 64. Uh, Pompey comes in and destroys that, and through all that, Herod gets appointed, he, he takes over as king of the Jews or king of Judea and so forth. But so during that Maccabean period, you've got these kind of tombs. So th these tombs can be dated a lot because of how they're constructed, the materials, what they're like. We know what burial practices were like at different periods and so forth. And so uh, we have these kind of elaborate tombs. And apparently Joseph had a tomb. He was a wealthy guy. So he's going to have his family in a tomb, you know. Um, here's one of these tombs. Uh, this is outside Jerusalem. This is a kind of the best example of a rolling stone tomb because we're thinking of Jesus in a tomb with a stone, you remember, uh, in front of it, and it's kind of rolled away. Here's an example just outside Jerusalem, kind of the best example today of a rolling stone tomb. Uh, and so... Um, I say here, after the Sabbath was almost over, the women planned to anoint the body. And uh, so the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. They went home and prepared spices and perfume, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Um, now, we have this uh, Gordon's Calvary, or the garden tomb. You see that north of the city there, uh, when, when people started coming back into Jerusalem in the, 19, in the 1800s, a lot of uh, British people came in, they did archaeology, they took a bunch of stuff back to the British Museum. <laughs> I mean, if you go to the British Museum, you can find all kinds of archaeological stuff from all over the Middle East because they just... Took it back and took it back to the British Museum, you know. A lot of these countries want it back now. But um, so there was a fellow named Colonel Gordon, and he, this, he wasn't the first one to identify this, but he found this tomb north of the city there, and he said this must be the one, the tomb of Jesus. And uh, the reason he did it, because we know from the Scriptures, from the Gospels, that this tomb was outside the city. Well, all tombs were outside the city. The Jews didn't bury anybody in the city, but outside the city. Now, if you look at this map here, see this wall right here. This is kind of the present wall of Jerusalem today. 
So if you go here to where the traditional site is, it's inside the wall. And he said, well, this can't be the tomb of Jesus. It's inside the wall, you know, because the Bible says it's outside the wall. Well, of course, it wasn't there <laughs> in the first century when he identified it. But, you know, like a lot of people, you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and you get kind of turned off. I mean, I was, I was telling Pansy, we were talking about this and when we were there, you go in and there's just the smell of incense like crazy. It's not what we think of as a church, you know, and it's just a lot of people crying and moaning, just, just desperation. It's just, you know, it's really not a, a pleasant place at all to go, actually. And so Protestants who go there, ah, this can't be the right place, you know, because it's just, you know, it's just, man, we can't handle that, you know. So, so a lot of uh, Christians have said, Gordon said, and people after that have said, that's the garden, that, that's, that's Calvary up there. Um, so one reason he identified it was, you know, it talks about uh, uh, Golgotha or Calvary, it means the place of the skull, the skull, and you see kind of this skull right here. It's been eroded a lot, but I don't know if you can see kind of a skull face there, you know. He saw that. And this is right, you, you can see that from the garden tomb. He saw that. He said, well, this is it. Now, we don't know that, that they called it the place of the skull because there was a skull carving. You know, nobody knows that. It's just he thought, well, that, maybe that's why it's called the place of the skull. We have no idea why it's called the place of the skull. So this is the garden tomb. So if you go there today, the tour guide will take you there. Now, as I said before, the people at the garden tomb they will not say this is the tomb of Jesus. They will not say. And the reason they won't say is because archaeologists say it's not the tomb of Jesus. They say it's not. All the archaeological, and I'll talk about some of the evidence here in just a moment. But they say it's, it's not the tomb of Jesus. And so but, the, so, but it's really a beautiful place to go. And there's a channel right here in the front. You can see that channel there where the stone would go right there. And they actually have a stone there, but the stone that they have, the rolling stone, was not found there. They just took it from another place and brought it there, you know, to kind of simulate what it was like. And, you know, that kind of idea. And there's a garden there, and you can sit on benches and so forth. So it's a very pleasant place. But uh, it doesn't appear to be the garden tomb because uh, the tomb is dated probably around, you know, 600 B.C., 700 B.C. It's just an older tomb. It goes back to that old era. Uh, so um, if you go inside, you'll see what's inside. You'll, you can walk inside the tomb, and you'll see how the body is laid out there and so forth. Um, some ossuaries there. So what, what, what people did was, in this time, at this period in Jerusalem, is they would bury the body in a tomb, and then, after the flesh had, had fallen off, they would take the bones and put them in a box called an ossuary box. And there's lots of these boxes have been found in Jerusalem and around that area and so forth. And there's been all kinds of you know, discussion about boxes. There was a box that, uh, and people would, people would carve on the outside sometimes. They would carve who's in the box, you know. And one of these boxes had carved on it indication that it was James, the brother of Jesus. And there's, a few years ago, there was a huge debate about this, whether it's true. In fact, one guy was brought up on charges in Israel as having faked this thing. And they had various witnesses testify. Some said it's a fake. Some said it's not a fake. They could never do anything, you know. That's one of the problems with these kind of things today is people fake stuff. There's a lot of money in faking these antiquities and so forth. And so, but there are these, these are burial boxes, and, what the, and that's what they did in Jesus' time. In that time, they would put the body, if you were rich, <laughs> I mean, if you were rich, they would put your body in a tomb. The bones would then, uh, 
once the bones were just there, they had put the bones in a box. They might put several families. I mean, they found bones with a, father, with a husband and a wife and children in these bones. So they found children's bones. So uh, they have all these uh, boxes with bones. But the problem with this particular tomb that we just uh, uh, saw there is that it doesn't correspond to the tombs. I said this is like 700 B.C., 600. It doesn't correspond to the tombs of Jesus' day. We know what they're like. What they're like is they have these little niches or niches. They have these little uh, carved out places where you lay the body this way. You know, you lay them this way in this niche. You don't lay them like, like that. You lay them like that. And that's the way all these tombs are of that particular period. They'd put the body in there, let the bones decay, and then they'd put them in a thing. Then put, put another body in there and so forth and put the bones in the ossuary. So there's all kinds of things about chisel marks, how they're made. There's just a lot of evidence that suggests that, you know, even though we might like this to be the tomb of Jesus, it's uh, more appealing, it's probably not the, the tomb of Jesus. And so more likely, it's this Golgotha here um, that we have, that I've shown you before. Um, this is kind of an artist's rendering of what it might look like. Uh, we know it was kind of up on a hill like that. In fact, if you go to the Church of Holy Sepulchre, I mean, they have excavated a lot there, and it is it doesn't look high today, but it was at one time, kind of on a little hill here. And so it's outside the city. It's just like we said, um, you know, you go outside the city here, uh, and uh, it's right here, you know, right outside. And here's the walls of Jerusalem at the time. And that's kind of what it probably, something like that. And then a tomb nearby. All these tombs are, as I say, outside the city. They were outside the city because they buried outside the city. Um, so this is the traditional site called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, and uh, it's, it has all the appearances of being the genuine site. Now what happened was that... Um, um, Remember, the Jews revolted in A.D. 70. Um, and uh, um, and then around 130, 135, an emperor by the name of Hadrian came to Jerusalem. And he decided to construct uh, temples on the sites of Jewish and Christian holy places where he could find because he was trying to uh, eliminate Christianity, you know. And so he went to the Temple Mount. The temple had been destroyed and he erected a temple to Jupiter there. Uh, the, the, and he renamed the city. Instead of Jerusalem, he called it Aelia Capitolina. Aelia is his family name. He named it after himself, Capitolina. And it was a temple to Jupiter. And then at the, the site of Jesus' crucifixion, he, he put a temple to Venus there. <laughs> so he was trying to put up these buildings, you know, to try to wipe out any Christian remembrance and so forth like that. Um, but um, when, Christi when Christianity became, when Constantine became a Christian, you know, in the 4th century, 300, 313th, whatever, I can't remember, 318, 320, then he comes there, his mother comes there, and they're looking for these holy sites. And they build churches on about everything, the holy site. On the, on the uh, Temple Mount, uh, the Temple of Jupiter, they just sort of tear that down, apparently, and leave it in rubble because they're trying to match the New Testament idea of Jesus, the temple's going to be destroyed, you know, and all that. So it's just in ruins. It's in ruins until... The Muslims come, you know, in the 600s and build the, the Dome of the Rock and all that on the Temple Mount. It just lays in ruins. Christians don't have any interest in that Temple Mount. 
and uh, he comes to the Church of the Sepulcher, or the, the Temple of Venus, and he builds this church. Now, he builds a church uh, there, and uh, eventually, when the Muslims come, in about 1100, uh, or they come earlier, 600 and some, they capture Jerusalem, but then there's the Crusades. But if one of the Muslim leaders actually destroys, kind of tears down the Holy Sepulcher. The Crusaders come and they rebuild it. So if you go there today, the church you'd see is really mostly a Crusader church, what was built in the 1100s by the Crusaders when they came, when they captured Jerusalem and rebuilt it. So uh, if you go there today, there's the door you go into. And remember I said there's factions, Armenian and Greek, Greek Orthodox, and, and, you know, and, and who, there's various Orthodox churches that, that claim rights to various parts of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I said, you remember, they have a Muslim guy who holds the, has the keys and he opens the door and <laughs> lets people in. So you go through right there that walkway and you go in. And here's the place of the crucifixion right there. You can see it's kind of elaborate. It's not appealing to Protestants, as I said. You know, you go in there and you see all that kind of stuff and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, there's the, the place of the crucifixion, and there's the rock, there's the mountain top. Now, just keep that in mind, because I'm going to come back to that in a moment here. That's supposed to be where Jesus was crucified, right there. Uh, remember that. Now, there was a map, a, a mosaic, that was discovered uh, in, uh, in Jordan. And... Uh, sometime what, 100 years ago, and uh, it's called the Madiba map. And it was, it's, it's, it's actually a mosaic that was created in the 6th century, so that's in the 500s. And this map is a kind of a map of the Middle East, you know. And it's got this part that's Jerusalem. This is a map of Jerusalem. Now, this is thing is, this thing is hard, to, <laughs> it's hard to understand. What in the world is this map here? Doesn't look like any map I've ever seen. Well, I guess it's not drawn in three dimensions like we you know, draw today. But when, when, when uh, the emperor came, Emperor Hadrian, he created this Roman city, Alia Capitolina. Now, when Constantine came as a Christian, he renamed it Jerusalem, started putting up churches and everything. So this is the, this is the, you know, the Constantine city as he rebuilt it. But what you have here is a cardo or a main street right down the center of Jerusalem. So going from west to east. And these are columns that were up on the, you know, as you walk down the street. If you ever if you see pictures of any Roman city, that's what you're going to have a main street. And you got, it's called a cardo. And you're going to have these columns on both sides and so forth. There was another street over here. Now the temple is right up here. And they don't even put, it's not even on the map. The temple area is right here. It's not even there. Now, there's a couple of churches here. Here's a church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Here it is. And there's another church he built over here, the Nea Church. Now, this is the gate. This is the, this is the uh, western gate, the Damascus Gate. So if you come in, if you, when you go to Jerusalem, this might be the gate you go in. This was the first gate I went in right here. I walked in this gate. Now, these gates have been torn down, built up, but it's still right there. It's still the same particular gate that Constantine had right there. Part of the old city, really. So this is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is where Jesus was uh, crucified. This is the garden tomb right here. You can't tell all that. People who study this can tell us a lot of details. I won't go into all that right here. But uh, so what I'm saying is, Christians never lost sight of these holy sites. Christians were, have been in Jerusalem since the time of Jesus. There's never been a time when Christians just, you know, weren't there. They did flee some during the 80-70 revolt, but they came back. There's always been Christians there. They have never forgotten where these sites are. That, that's another thing that gives authenticity to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. No one's ever forgotten where Jesus was crucified and his tomb and so forth like that. Um, so that's trying to show some things, but that's kind of a, 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 a larger map. But this is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre here. 
and look at those columns there. Now, remember, when you go to ancient cities, one of the things you notice is they just kept building on top of each other. So if you want to get down to the old cities, you've got to go lower, dig lower. So if you go to Jerusalem today and you go to the old city, you'll see the cardo. There's the cardo, and there's those original columns that go back to Hadrian that we just talked about. Now, that's actually below the street level. So when you go there, the street level is up here, and Israel has dug down, archaeologists have dug down, and they've uncovered this street. They've also uncovered that other street up there. That other street is just in front of the Temple Mount. They hadn't even uncovered that when I was there in 2000, but they've uncovered that cardo too. It's, it's, you can, if you go there, you can see it right in, fr- right in front of the Western Wall where you, people go to pray and all that. So that's the cardo there. And uh, so there's that rock. Now, here's probably what happened, they think. So you see this part here. This is the church. And uh, remember I said it had a front part and a back part. This, this part was all original rock here. And there's that, that part that we see that, that, we, that was covered with glass. Remember I said that stone where Jesus was crucified? That appears to be that right there. They, they chipped all this away when they built the church. They chipped all this stuff away. It's all gone. And they built this church on top of it, you see. And so the tomb is right here in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And probably the place of crucifixion is right there. So it seems like that's right. You know, we can't... All the archaeological evidence points. Uh, they're not too far. You know, I can't remember... Uh, 50 foot, I don't know, you know, I can't remember exactly. It's not, not too far, not that far. Yeah, and maybe it's not, it's not that far, not too far. You know, can't try to think. It's not really, not really that far. Now, I've never, I never, I never got in there. You can't really get in there unless you've got special permission or something like that. You just kind of know where it's at back there, but couldn't really get in there at the time. And sometimes when you go there, you can't even, Get into sometimes there's uprisings and this you can't get you can't see things sometimes you can see them and so forth like that. So um, um, that appears to be the place where Jesus was crucified. Let's talk then about the resurrection, chapter twenty, uh, one through thirty-one. First of all, the empty tomb. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Peter, Jesus loved. That would be, we think, you know, John, the writer of this gospel, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So the discovery of the empty tomb was made by Mary Magdalene. A comparison of all four Gospels uh, reveals the details to be very complicated at this point. You try to fit all this together. However, something like the following must have occurred. On the first day of the week, a group of women, including Mary Magdalene, had set out, this would be, you know, Sunday, had set out early for the tomb while it was still dark. <clears throat> Luke 24, 1, uh, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Uh, Mary must have run ahead and arrived first. When she found the empty tomb, she immediately left to tell Peter and John. Thus, she did not see the angel nor hear the message he gave to the other women when they arrived after sunrise. So if you look at Mark, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome uh, brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone? Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the tomb, which was very large, had been rolled away. 
So the stone had been, it was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. So um, apparently she saw the empty tomb, Mary did, and left uh, kind of immediately to tell uh, Peter and John, um, as we saw there in verse 2. She, they saw that the stone had been removed, John 20, verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter. So she kind of goes immediately to say, hey, the stone's away, and they've stolen his body. You know, so what's happened to this thing? I say here that the heavy earthquake, the heavy stone had been rolled away uh, by uh, an angel of the Lord in connection with the earthquake. Matthew says, after the Sabbath, at dawn, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and set on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. I say this had happened before the arrival of any visitors on the first day of the week. Its purpose was to let visitors see the body of Jesus was gone. Otherwise, the presence of the soldiers and the authoritative seal on the stone would have prevented such a verification. Uh, now, I mean, the resurrection body of Jesus, as we're going to see in just a few verses here, is not impeded by the stone because Jesus as we'll see a couple occasions, just appears in a locked room later here. The disciples are in a locked room. They're afraid. They lock the door. Jesus can appear. So apparently this glorified body, or at least Jesus' body anyway, has these kind of capabilities. So the stone wouldn't have prevented him. Uh, he could pass through material objects. So, uh, but it was there to say, so they could look in and see there's no, there's no body there. He's, he's gone, you know. Uh, so Jesus could have risen, you know, sometime earlier on the Sabbath. We don't know exactly sometime Sunday morning he did, but we don't know exactly when. So the examination of the empty tomb, 23 through 7. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This would be John. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there and did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. I see an examination was made by Peter and John, the other disciple who was also identified as the disciple whom Jesus loved earlier, remember? assumed to be John, the author of the gospel. He reached the open sepulcher first, but stood outside looking in. Peter, for whatever reason, you know, some speculation, he couldn't run as fast, who knows? He didn't get there as fast as John did. Arrived after John and went on. Um, he went on inside and where he was joined by John. Uh, they noticed uh, two peculiar features about the tomb. One was the presence of the grave clothes. If the body had been moved, they, why had the linen wrappings been removed and left behind? Uh, normally, they would, you would, would take that. The, the, the other strange feature was the apparent the arrangement of the grave clothes. Instead of the wrappings lying down in disarray or piled in a heap in the corner, the, the headpiece was still in the position where the head had been. Actually, thieves would you know, hardly leave behind expensive linen and even more expensive spices. The wrappings seemed to have been in the very position in which the body had lain, although they were now collapsed where there was no body within. So, uh, you know, how the body of Jesus could have been removed without disturbing the wrappings is a problem not answerable by normal you know, explanations. The only explanation, of course, is that he's able to pass through the grave clothes. Jesus could just pass through them, just like we'll see he passed through the walls of the building. So uh, we'll see that in verse 19, verse 26. Well, then the conclusion about the empty tomb. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? 
Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Seeing the empty tomb and the grave clothes, John drew the only reasonable conclusion. With sudden intuition, he perceived that the only explanation was that Jesus, who had been crucified, that Jesus, who had so recently assigned him his mother, the Jesus who had been buried in the new tomb had risen from the dead. He had, you know, or something. He, 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 he didn't equate that with Scripture. <laughs> but he's, he, clearly something miraculous has happened here. How do you explain this? Uh, uh, even though Jesus had predicted he would rise from the dead, not one of his disciples really comprehended it. The Old Testament Scripture had foretold of the resurrection, at least the Psalm 16.10, were not understood until Jesus explained them later. I mean, he has to kind of explain all this stuff. This is, you know, on the road to Emmaus, which is not covered in the Gospel of John, but remember Jesus, after his resurrection, uh, encounters these two disciples on this road to Emmaus. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So John's conclusion, therefore, was based solely on what he saw in the empty tomb. Whether John shared his conviction with Peter is not stated, but it may be presumed that he did. Uh, You know, what Peter believed at this time, you know, John seems to get it or part of it, you know, he... Uh, Peter, you know, it says here in Luke's account, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering himself what had happened. So he still didn't quite get it. You know, he, you know, we don't know what's exactly in his mind, but he's not fully understanding this resurrection. You know, apparently they don't really fully grasp it until Jesus appears to them later on a number of occasions. Remember, it says that Jesus appears to them over a period of 40 days. And why 40 days, it says in the book of Acts? Well, obviously, you know, this is to convince them. <laughs> you know, he's gonna, they're going to see him over a number of days, 40 days. There can't be any question. This is their Lord. This is their master. So, uh, you know, it's just not going to be one appearance, but a number of appearances. So uh, these men then apparently went back to where they were staying, to their quarters in Jerusalem. Then we see the appearance of Jesus to Mary Magdalene, chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. The uh, circumstances here. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. After Mary Magdalene had reported To Peter and John, the fact of the empty tomb, she went back to the spot to weep. The two apostles had preceded her, but had already left by the time she arrived. Thus she knew nothing of their belief in the resurrection, or at least, you know, what they suspected, or what at least John felt apparently about it. Her overwhelming feeling was grief, and she stood by the open sepulcher and openly wept. She just thinks somebody's taken his body. The cause of her sorrow was her personal sense of loss at the death of Jesus. This bereavement was compounded by the fact that even the body had disappeared, and thus she had lost all contact with Jesus. Looking into the tomb, she saw two angels. These had the form of men and had also also been seen by the group of women whom Mary had been been with earlier in the morning, before she left to tell Peter and John. When the angels questioned Mary, she was apparently too overcome, apparently by her own grief, to be impressed or startled by their, these supernatural visitors. She, she brokenly explained, they have taken my Lord away. So apparently she's maybe just too overwhelmed 
to you know be uh, fascinated by these two angels, these two who were who were there at the tomb. Um, I mean, Mary is very de- clearly, you know, she had she had ample reason to be devoted to Jesus. Who wouldn't, you know? She he had from Luke eight we learn, you know, he had um, rescued her life from demon possession. Uh, he had cast the demons out of her, and uh, Luke makes a Luke is is an interesting gospel because he makes a lot of reference to women who were followers of Jesus that the other gospels don't. It says there's a lot of women who not only followed Jesus but supported him financially. Actually, Luke tells us that, which is very interesting. Uh, and so she says, you know, I don't know where they have put him. She says, they have taken my Lord, not just the Lord, but my Lord. So, you know, naturally, she's very upset by this. She thinks his body's been stolen. Then the appear- Jesus appears to her, chapter 20, verses 14 through 16. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will get him. (laughs) Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Remember, uh, Aramaic is probably the language that most people spoke at that time. It's very similar to Hebrew, but the remember the Jews, when they went into captivity, they, they picked up the Aramaic language, which was the universal language, and they brought it back. Greek became the universal language, but apparently, especially in Jerusalem, uh, Aramaic, not so much maybe in Galilee, but in, in Jerusalem, in Judea, Aramaic was the most common language. Uh, so when Jesus appeared, Mary broke off her conversation with the angels and asked whether this man, who she thought might be the gardener, knew where Jesus was. She did not recognize him until he spoke her name. Although it was the same Jesus, there may have been some external differences. Um, it's hard to know here uh, about this. Uh, Luke twenty four sixteen says that the people the guys on the road to Emmaus were kept from recognizing him, kept from recognizing him. You know, it's hard to know whether there was something going on here that initially they were kept by God from recognizing. It's difficult to know whether you just don't automatically recognize the resurrection body, the glorified body. What is that? We know it's going to be similar. Paul says it's going to be similar to our present bodies, but, you know, uh, we assume it'll be somewhat different. You know, I'll be 30 years old and, you know, (laughs) we don't know, you know. I don't know exactly uh, how that'll all work. It's, It's unclear to us exactly. So it's difficult to know why she didn't recognize him, whether this is some sort of divine thing like the guys on the road to Emmaus, the two men, or whether this is just the glorified body, uh, I don't know. Uh, perhaps a more important in the explanation is the condition of Mary herself, maybe. Grief-stricken, despairing, completely unprepared to expect a resurrection. She was not ready in mind to accept the reality of it. Maybe that's part of it. And if you don't Expect to see someone. It couldn't be that person. Maybe that's part. It's possible Mary was blinded by tears. Okay. On the other hand, some believe that she was divinely kept, as we said. So it's, you know, I'm not sure uh, exactly. When she finally recognized Jesus by speaking, his speaking of her name, she responded with Rabboni, an Aramaic word, respectful form of address among the Jews used for those regarded as, you know, a higher rank than the speaker. It's really... Pretty much the same word as rabbi. So rabbi was a word that in the first century was used of some recognized teacher, uh, that kind of thing. Later it becomes an official kind of, we might call it an ordained person or someone who's a, a recognized 
Jewish trained person, you know, the head of you know synagogue or something like that. But at this time, it's more uh, a recognized teacher, just a title of respect for recognized teachers. Um, um, it's been used a number of times in the Gospel of John for Jesus over and over again. It's been seven or eight times. Jesus has been called Rabbi, 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 right from chapter one on. But here is just a slightly different version of that. So this was probably a term that they used to refer to him quite, quite often. Well, then the instruction for Mary, 2017 through 18. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the Jews. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had, that he had said these things to her. So Mary gave, uh, Jesus gave Mary two commands. The first was, do not hold on to me. Apparently, maybe she grasped at his feet, at least the Matthew account says, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him and glasped his feet and worshipped him. So maybe that's what she did. She kind of grabs him, you know, and he says, don't hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to my father. Uh, Jesus understood her thoughts, recognized that she supposed this return to be the one he had promised to the disciples. That's, I think that's what's going on here. Remember John 14, 3 says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to return and receive you unto myself. Now, of course, we know that's the second coming when Jesus comes at his second coming and so forth. Uh, he'll come back and receive us, uh, those who are still alive in the church, and so forth. Um, but I say this post-resurrection appearance was not a second coming in which he would take believers with him. That would have to be preceded by the ascension and the sending of the Spirit. In the interim, Jesus could not be retained on the earth by Mary or others. He had other Another function of reform in heaven, ministering on the behalf of all believers. So it's, it's a little difficult to make, you know, to fully grasp all this stuff about the ascension. We know Jesus ascends in Acts chapter 1. He says he has these 40 days of appearances. He appeared on occasion for 40 days, and then he ascends back where he is today, is his uh, glorified body is back in heaven. Um, so we know that's the case. Um, some people, uh, contemplate a kind of an ascension in between that, <laughs> that he ascended back to heaven and comes back. There's a lot of discussion about some of these things. It may be best just to think here that, you know, we have one ascension in Acts chapter one and basically he has been resurrected from the grave, but he hasn't ascended, you know, in the sense of the final ascension back to the Father. And we probably shouldn't think of multiple ascensions. There's a lot of theology involved in a lot of this stuff because Ephesians talks about Jesus descending, leading captivity captive, you know, giving gifts to men and so forth like that. Uh, there's a lot of theological ideas about this kind of thing that uh, that Jesus uh, went to Hades, which at the in the Old Testament time was divided into two parts, an upper part and a lower part, which we see in Luke 16 with the parable or the story of the rich man. You remember he, the, the, there's Abraham there and Abraham's bosom or paradise and uh, then there is uh, the place of torment. And one view, I, I hold this view, uh, but there's, you know, it's, not, it's not absolutely proven by Scripture, but that uh, in the Old Testament period, there was Hades, the place of the, the Old Testament talks about 
going to the place of death, the place of the departed, the Greek word Hades, uh, and that because Jesus had not died on the cross, uh, believers could not actually enter the presence of God. They went to a place of paradise or a place of, you know, like heaven, like place, and Hades, the upper chamber. And then when Jesus did die on the cross, he descended and he led those captives and back to heaven. He didn't, he maybe didn't go to heaven, but he led them by, he, he freed them so that the saints, all the Old Testament saints, all those who had died and been saved were liberated to go to heaven and they went to heaven, they're in heaven. And now we go directly to heaven because of that. So that kind of makes sense of Ephesians 4 and so forth. So uh, that, that makes some sense to me, but I won't try to, that's enough for what we're at here in the gospel right now. <laughs> uh, then we see the appearance of uh, Jesus, uh, well, I should say, that, I'm sorry, the second command here. The second command was, go to my brothers. Jesus says, uh, go to instead to my brothers and tell them I'm sending to my father and your father, to my God and your God, and so forth. Uh, the second command was, go to my brethren. She was to announce the fact of the resurrection, the coming ascension to the disciples. My brothers should be understood in the sense of disciples rather than those of Jesus' familial brothers, familial brothers who are not yet, as not yet, un, who are yet unbelievers. Remember that John says earlier, I didn't put this first, but they didn't become believers until after this, after Jesus' death and so forth. They were unbelievers. Remember, we saw that in John earlier where they said, hey, listen, you want to be a famous person, man, head on down to Jerusalem and, you know, become a celebrity. That's, that's their view of Jesus because he can work these miracles, capitalize on this, monetize this thing or whatever, you know, it takes. You know, they were really unbelievers. So they, that, this is probably the disciples we're talking about. Go tell my brothers, spiritual brothers, uh, not his unbelieving family. At any rate, this seems to be the way Mary interpreted the words, and there's no indication she went to speak with members of Jesus' family and so forth. So that's, uh, that's I think, what we have here. Well, then we see the appearance of Jesus to the ten. Um, and uh, let's see here. I don't know if we should start this or not because we have about three minutes left here. So why don't we just uh, hold on to that rather than start a new section and have to come back and we can kind of figure our way here. So next week will be our last week, Lord willing, and we should be able to finish up this and what's called the epilogue in chapter 21. It looks like that the, the, the main part of the gospel, the story, ends here in chapter 20. Uh, and then... Uh, Chapter 21 seems to be an epilogue like the prologue. Remember John 1, 1 through 18 is an introduction. This is kind of a conclusion when we get to chapter uh, 21, latter part of chapter 21. So let's stop here for tonight. Thank you so much. And we will, Lord willing, finish up next week. Okay?